speaker <clears throat> is another uh, one of another one of my great friends is the Reverend Jacob A. Smith. We had the pleasure of meeting um, Jacob and his wife Melina while we were in seminary at Trinity, and became fast friends and have been um, close ever since. And we uh, that's where we all kind of got together um, and have have been walking along these paths. Um, yeah, ever since he is the priest in charge, uh, which. It is basically means we were all praying for him to become the rector but uh, um, of a church in uh, Manhattan, and he not to to give him too much credit because obviously the Holy Spirit was involved, but um, he was given to go straight out of seminary to a church that uh, was let 's say had seen better days and was um, as many churches are, not this one uh, sort of uh, had fraught with with, we would say, administrative and leadership difficulties, and um, he has righted it in an amazing way. And so his work among uh, the sort of culture despisers in Manhattan has been uh, borne much fruit with um, a resurgent Evensong, with uh, lecture series, and he is uh, basically, other than certain others who remain nameless, uh, the model of exactly the type minister you would want um, in your church, so it's with great joy. Um, that was a joke about me. That was that's what I meant. I didn't want to. That's what I was just. Oh, we got okay. I got it. Thank you. Um, but uh, just uh, without further ado, Jacob Smith. Well, it is uh, great to be here in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, here at St. Francis in this amazing church. And it's great because this is one of the first places I've ever been to where I've been known as Mel's husband. And so, because uh, a lot of you I know read uh, Mel and Liza's blog, and so that's a real honor. Uh, before I get started, I just want to thank uh, uh, the rector, Robin Jennings, and uh, J.D. Koch uh, for their warm invitation to speak at this amazing conference. I think a conference designed to actually uh, give you a gospel-centric view of life and spirituality, which, if I might argue, is the only view to actually have when it comes to life and spirituality. There's a lot of options out there, and unfortunately, there's a lot of options even in the church, and churches that would brand themselves as actually biblical, and uh, they're anything but. And uh, this is a real problem. My name is, as as J.D. said, is the Reverend Jacob Smith, and uh, I'm the priest in charge at Calvary St. George's, and um, I actually... um, the gospel actually saved my life. I mean, if it wasn't for the gospel, I, I actually heard the gospel for the first time, really, in seminary, that the gospel was actually for Christians, and um, it changed my life. And if it wasn't for hearing that message, primarily through J.D. and Dave's father, I'd probably be back in Arizona selling real estate, and um, which is a bad option right now. So, but uh, this is um, this is uh, this is this is true. And, uh, and so, and when I heard the guy, it was like, I went through this, this like rage phase, phase at first. I was like, how come I never heard this? Like, why was every sermon I ever heard about like five steps to like financial advice or what I can, like, I could do? I mean, you can go to Rotary and hear any of that stuff. You can't hear it in the church. And so I really, I began to, to study this and became enamored with it and what went so horribly wrong in American Christianity. And uh, I went all the way to France to study it. And, um, but uh, it, it's true. And uh, the topic that I've been given, everything new is moralism, moralism again. 
how the law is emptying the church? It's true. The topic is relevant. I mean, we've been talking about Facebook and social media. But daily, and this is not an exaggeration, daily, I get about 15 emails or 15 Facebook posts from friends and colleagues talking about how the church in America is dying. There was recently an article in The Atlantic just about two weeks ago about how sports is America's new religion. And I don't know if this is a problem in Louisville, but it's definitely a problem in New York City. You know, all sorts of like Pop Warner football game or lacrosse games are now played on Sunday because Saturday is family day. And so, but people are talking about this. And Gallup actually did a very interesting survey a couple of years ago that said that about 60% of Americans attend church on a Sunday. Now, compared to Europe, that's very significant. However, uh, the Journal for Scientific Study of Religion um, by uh, sociologist C. Kirk Hathaway and Penny Long Marler, they looked at that survey and they said, there's something wrong with this. This just doesn't add up. This doesn't add up. And so they began to do their own research, and they're known for their scholarly research of the church, and said that these numbers definitely don't add up. And what they found out, and they released a study in August of 2013 about this, They found that in actuality, it's probably more like half, 30% of Americans attend church. And of that, 17% attend church regularly, like every Sunday. Uh, And and part of this is, is that I think the church has lost ground because it is no different than what you can get in any self-help section at the bookstore. Actually, at Barnes & Noble in Union Square, right by my house, um, Christianity is in the self-help section of the bookstore now. The problem with American Christianity that much of us know about and have been raised in, and maybe what I'm going to say is going to freak some of you out, you know, because you're like, oh, I thought that was Christianity. And it, it, it's not. It's death. St. Paul actually calls it a ministry of death. But the problem with American Christianity, it runs deep. It runs back to our earliest days. And so what I want to talk about today is, one, I'd like to give you a brief description of why I think the church in America is finally on a rapid decline. Two, I want to tell you, so if, if it's in a decline... I don't have an answer of how to make it grow, but it's in a decline because it's not giving the message. And so the second thing I want to talk about then is, what is the message? And then the third thing I'll talk about is, is, is how, as the church, how is the church called to deliver this message to the world once again? And, uh, and this, how we're delivering it at Calvary St. George's, I think is true for everywhere. You know, people always say, oh, New York, it's no different than Louisville. You know, people there have a sick child. People there are struggling with their marriages. People there are struggling to find a job. And it's really expensive to live there. I mean, but, uh, but people are the same everywhere. And so the church's message is the same, whether you're in Los Angeles, New York, Branson, Missouri, wherever. Now, Americans, the problem runs deep, and it goes all the way back to our earliest days with even uh, the first and second great awakening with Jonathan Edwards even and those guys. But uh, Americans are ingenious. And uh, we're ingenious at taking things and making it uniquely our own. And we did this with the Christian story. We took the gospel, 
the earliest days, we took the gospel, you know, the message that God has fulfilled all of his promises for the salvation of the whole world in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what happened was, is that as opposed to like what St. Patrick did, he took Celtic culture and baptized it with Christianity. We took God's story, the story of the gospel, and we baptized it with the American ideas of manifest destiny and conquering the world, living out your dreams. Contrary to most of our prevalent views, many of our founding fathers were not devout evangelical Christians. There were a few, but most of them were deists. The idea of deism is that God basically set the earth in motion and took off to a celestial Alcapoco. And it's kind of like, it's up to us to kind of figure it out. And we do that. And, you know, and we're free agents, free to make our own decisions, free to stand on our own two feet, free to to conquer the world. And what happened was, is that deism baptized Christianity. And what happened was, is you have a unique form of American Christianity. Now, early Christians, and and, and this was found in a lot of the mainline, early mainline churches, see, that had confessional roots, roots in a confession. Ours is the 39 articles. Uh, when, When guys like Jefferson became president in 1801, this was viewed by many actual Christians as a distressing event ominous with the future of American religion. You know, Jefferson was one of the first to begin the quest for the historical Jesus. And you can check out his Bible in Charlottesville, where all the miracles are completely cut out. The ideas of deism were incredibly popular and became very popular in a lot of our colleges, especially those that were originally founded as seminaries, like, uh, uh, like places like Harvard and... Uh, and, and uh, and Yale, and uh, the ideas of deism in these, these colleges just it, it began to shape the religion. The Episcopal vi- Bishop of Virginia, William Meade, in the early 1800s, he declared that the College of William and Mary was the hotbed of French politics and religion. But what happened was is that, that, that God's story began to be shaped and became our story. Our story of how we are making our way. Our story of how we are making our way back to God and trying to find Him and what we're doing for God as we conquer this country and expand out west. Deism and even atheism, interestingly enough, took deep root along the frontier. The vast amount of space combined with the low density of people, made it difficult initially for the church uh, to have its missionary endeavors to have a very strong impact, especially confessional churches. The frontier was the place where those who sought to live out from underneath the puritanical moralism of New England sought refuge. Even the early settlers of Kentucky named some of their towns after prominent French deists such as LaRue, Bourbon, my favorite drink, and uh, Altamont. Those are all named after French deist philosophers. But this all began, and so what happened was, is you had revivalism. And Jonathan Edwards with his revivalism, well, his second generation, this was all located in Yale, 
they were like, they began to think, well, how can we keep this going? How can we keep this going, this, this, this fervor up? And they became known as new divinity men. And what they began to do is, is they had a real heavy-duty um, emphasis on uh, uh, predestination and this idea of predestination and being predestined, which, I mean, in the Bible, it's true. But one of the things they did was is they began with their revivalism is how do we know that you're predestined? Well, it's all about what you do. And you see, this began to insert the will in this once again. And, and, and as the will became stronger, as the will became more of an important part of Christianity, well, then it began to just, just run rampant. And Christianity became, in America became all about the individual and what the individual does. What you began to see happen is moralism. This is where, you know, what you do defines you came into Christianity. It shaped American religion and gave a moralistic version of Christianity where God becomes the passive agent and the emphasis is not no longer on what God has done for you in the preaching of the gospel, but now what you should do for God. And so this is why oftentimes you'll hear, you know, okay, Jesus has died for you, but now what are you going to do for Jesus? This is why so many American Christians believe that if you do your part, God will do his. That God helps those who help themselves. Those two phrases are actually attributed to St. Benjamin Franklin, who was, <laughs> who was a deist and um, who was a deist and not one of the apostles. But these ideas, and whether you know it or not, they have shaped our piety. Because the American Christian story, if God is the passive agent and we are the active agent, and I mean, this was really promoted by a revivalist named Charles Finney, and that's all I'm going to say about him. But anyway, uh, but we believe that somehow, some way, we're the ones responsible for our Christianity. We are the ones, maybe God got us in the club, but we are the ones responsible for staying in it. J. Gritcham Machen, when speaking about the rampant moralism in the church in the early 20th century, once said, soon we will have so much applied Christianity that we will have no Christianity to apply. And this is true. This is true. We see it all over the place. You know, where it's all about what you do and how you do it. Churches are no longer churches, but they're kind of self-help centers. American Christianity now has become so associated with what I need to do to make myself better, what I need to do to discover my purpose, what I need to do to have my best life now, that this has contributed to its decline. And it's contributed to its decline because it has lost ground in a sea of other religions and in a sea of other programs that will help you live your best life now too. 
This is why Christian books, the Barnes and Noble in Union Square, is in the self-help section. Because it has no longer anything to do with Christianity. Phil Vischer, uh, the creator of VeggieTales, he shares the story of his own life in the VeggieTales. And uh, in, in, in a recent article in World Magazine, he actually repents of what he had done in the VeggieTales. And, and he repents of how he has contributed to uh, the young people's decline in church attendance into promoting of moralism and how that has led to the decline of the church. He says this, listen to this, this is very powerful. I looked back at the previous 10 years and realized I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. And that was a pretty serious conviction. You can say, hey kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Or, hey, kids, be more kind because the Bible says so. But that isn't Christianity. It's morality. American Christians, he goes on to say, are drinking a cocktail that's a mix of Protestant work ethic, the American dream, and the gospel. And we've intertwined them so completely that we can't tell them apart anymore. Our gospel has become a gospel of following your dreams and being good so God will make all your dreams come true. It's Oprah's God. We've completely taken this Disney notion of when you wish upon a star, your dreams come true, and melded that with faith and come up with something completely different. He finally says, there's something wrong in a culture, and in a church that preaches nothing is more sacred than your dream. I mean, we walk away from marriages to follow our dreams. We abandon children to follow our dreams. We hurt people in the name of our dreams, which as a Christian is just preposterous. I mean, that's heavy. But it gives us an insight into the problem, and why the church is on decline. Actually, while I was flying here from New York City, uh, I sat next to a young woman, um, and she was like, what do you do? I was like, are you ready for this? And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm a minister. And she was like, oh, really? That's interesting. And, uh, and she was like, she was like, you know, I'm from Tennessee, and, you know, I was really, I was raised in the church, but my husband's Jewish. And this is the thing. My husband's Jewish, and we live on Long Island now. And, you know, really, it's just about loving people and helping people, and that's all that matters. And, I mean, but that, 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 that's completely to miss the mark. You hear what I'm saying? If, if religion, if Christianity is all about what you do, if it's truth, if it's, it's, if it's validity is in how it helps you, then, well, what's the difference between that and how Islam has helped somebody? What's the difference between that and how, you know, going to Woodstock and, like, meditating with the Yogi Maharishi? How is, then that helps people. How is that any different? You see, what makes Christianity valid is that it's actually true. Not that it's helpful, 
have this amazing picture of these Christians being fed to the lions. It's an old Roman woodcut of uh, Christians being fed to the lions. And down below it says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) (laughs) But Christianity is valid because it's true. What we believe and what we confess is that there is one man, Jesus Christ, who came to earth and actually made the claim that he was God. Preached forgiveness in himself, died on a cross, and on the third day rose from the dead. If they find his body, we just pack up shop tomorrow. Because it's not true. And it hasn't been that helpful to me, you know. But it's true. That's what makes Christianity valid. And that's the point of the church. And this is my first point. Much of American Christianity, since its beginning, has essentially been a milieu of self-help, deistic moralism. And while in the beginning... It may appear alluring, it may appear helpful, and it may even appear attractive. As we see today, it is not lasting, and it is running its course. It is running its course, because it has nothing to do with the one thing that's lasting, the one thing that's unique about Christianity, and that is the gospel. That God and Jesus actually saves those who can't save themselves. God and Jesus Christ redeems those who are beyond help. So, as I've said, there's a lot of confusion about what is the gospel versus the effects of the gospel in our lives. And uh, this confusion oftentimes comes from, from certain places in Scripture. Like we take them and we pull it out and we just apply it to ourselves. Like, for example, the, the Corinthian verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, the love passage. You know, there was, a, there was an episode of Amazing Race about five years ago where there was this gal and she was reading 1 Corinthians 12 and she was like, I just read this passage every day and where it says love, I just put my name in there. You know, Marcia is patient. Marcia is kind. Marcia is, you know. And then the whole episode, it was such a setup because the whole episode, she's screaming at her partner and yelling at her and like, you know, get it together. We're going to lose. You know, there wasn't much patience. Next time you read 1 Corinthians 12, where you see love, put Jesus' name in there. And know that it's all for you. But let's take a look at uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. I'll read it. <laughs> for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, that statement from Paul is rooted in Paul's confidence and hope in Christ's righteousness, the gospel given to him. Not in that somehow God's going to be like, awesome, Paul, you know, you did a great... No, it's rooted in this amazing confidence in what Jesus has done for him and given to him that, that now God would say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
But he goes on, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for, <clears throat> and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, self-help, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, a.k.a. what they do. There are seven steps according to an effective marriage. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regarded him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Oftentimes, what happens is, is with our can-do American Christian attitudes, we take, oh, take this passage over and we immediately focus on this idea of trying to be a new creation. So I'm just using this as one example of the problem in the church. And what we must do to keep ourselves new And this focus deceives people into self-reliance. And it's this focus on what I need to do to stay a new creation eventually empties churches. This week I'm a new creation, so I won't be faithless like those other people over there. And it begins to create an us-against-them mentality. I'm going to try and pray more, etc., 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 whatever it is. I'm not going to be like those people over there. And we fool ourselves into believing that a new creation is something that can be defined by reason or can somehow be measured in my own life. And therefore, the mission of the church gets skewed, you see. And the mission of the church becomes all about making people better. And we spiritualize it. Like talk about, like we hear it all the time in the Episcopal Church, renewing the earth. Or here in certain places, renewing culture, renewing, redeeming the city. You know, making people fully developed followers of Jesus. Whatever it is, the mission of the church is for us then to make new creations. And it takes the Holy Spirit right out of it. And this is a misunderstanding, and you see this is ultimately death. The issue St. Paul is addressing here in 2 Corinthians 5 is actually how are we going to stand before God? 
And the answer is not how you made yourself a new creation. The answer is Jesus Christ and what He has done for us in His life, death, and resurrection. As Paul writes, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What a powerful line. But this is my second point. A new creation is the effect of the gospel. Not the gospel itself. It is the effect of being reconciled to God. Because God is the protagonist in the relationship. It is the effect of being reconciled to God. And Paul tells us that God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. I mean, this is one of the powerful things about being a part of a liturgical church like St. Francis in the Fields. Is that we have this liturgy. You know, oftentimes it's all about me inviting God into my story. And that's awfully nice of me. But what, the, but what the liturgy and what you are entering into here reminds you is that you are brought into God's story. He has found you. And he has pulled you into his life because he has reconciled you to himself. And he has made you a new creation. And listen, he is God and you are the creature. And when he has declared you a new creation, you are For he is not about to let his creatures have the final say. You are a new creation. And there is nothing you can do to sully the newness. This is the powerful thing about the gospel. And this is the power of God to save. And this is the power of the church to draw the whole world back to himself. You see, and it's in this confidence... This confidence that God is at work by His Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. That God is the protagonist reconciling the world to Himself through Jesus Christ. And that we are actually passive agents being worked upon. This, this is where the church begins to rediscover her mission and her mission to the whole world. And we see what Paul calls himself, and he calls the church. What does he say in that reading? That we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors of Christ. Every year, I I, I never got that really, until I went to this banquet. Every year, in my congregation, we have a large West Indian population. And every year, I go to a banquet which raises money for a mission organization called the Mustard Seed. And uh, this is a mission organization that helps orphanages for handicapped and, uh, and uh, handicapped children in places like Jamaica and the Dominican Republic and the Bahamas and uh, the Caribbean parts of Latin America become uh, self-sufficient and self-sustaining. They don't have to rely on any government corruption. But one year, they had at this event the Jamaican ambassador to the United States as the speaker. And I don't know, uh, but evidently the prime minister wasn't very popular with the expats in New York City. Is he ever? But anyway, uh, (laughs) that was supposed to be funny. But anyway, um, so they began to press her on her views of what was going on in Jamaica and what she would do. And she said something very interesting at this banquet. She said, listen, I am not here to give you my views. 
I am here to deliver to you a message from the prime minister, not my own message. I thought, gosh, that's powerful. Because she'd taken the onus off of her and placed it where it belonged, on the prime minister. See, this is what Paul is doing. You know, we don't have to come up with our own things. We don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time and how to get people to stand on their own two feet. Because we're regarding nobody any longer by the flesh, by what they do. To be an ambassador for Jesus Christ is actually truly freeing because it takes the onus off of you and places it squarely where it belongs. It takes the onus off of you and what you do and places it squarely where it belongs on our King Jesus and what he has done for you, for me, for the whole world. See, that's the mission of the church. In J.D.'s office, he's got this powerful picture, it's one of my favorites, of Luther in the pulpit, and there's the congregation. But right in between is a crucified Christ, and there Luther is pointing to it. That's what he's doing an ambassador for Christ. And as ambassadors for Christ, with this message of the gospel, that Jesus has died, risen, and is coming again for you. See, this message, it's timeless. And it has the power to engage hearts. It has the power to engage minds. And it has the power to engage souls of broken people who are just exhausted by trying to get better. A church that engages the world as ambassadors, I think typically does this in three ways. And these three ways are all intertwined. And this is one of the things I've been trying to work at over the last couple of years at our church. But they're all tied together, and there's three specific callings of the church, I think as ambassadors of Christ, delivering this message of reconciliation. But the first calling is a triage unit. You know, as you begin to pre- preach the forgiveness of sins, the truth is, is weirdos show up. And I mean, this is like, this is true. Real broken people come together and come because they need this message. This is water of life in a world that's constantly saying, look within, find the power within. In the medieval Catholic church, one of the popular images of Christ in the church, especially in the English church, was one of him pointing a sword at you. And uh, people oftentimes talk about the Puritans destroying all of the beautiful stained glass. But this stained glass, according to one of our friends, Ashley Knoll, was in a lot of churches. And they were like, get that thing out of here. It was Jesus holding a sword pointed right at you. And the message was, he is your judge. Get your act together. And sadly, this is still a popular understanding of Jesus in our moralistic, therapeutic milieu of deism that we oftentimes call Christianity. Although he's oftentimes a little nicer. You know, he can be your homeboy. He's relevant, wears skinny jeans. But he still still expects you to get your act together and be a new creation. And this message, this image is not helpful. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a fatal bullet wound 
and saying, okay, be healthy. You know? I, I mean, this is why we... If, if, if I could get my act together, I wouldn't need to come to church. But a church that's a triage unit, you know? It actually sees people as they are and recognizes the fact that most people have walked on glass to get to church. And they're fighting with their kids to get there. They had a fight with their husband to get to church. They had a fight with their wife to get to church. They had a long, long week and a harder weekend. And that the truth is, is that the church that's the triage unit recognizes that everyone has had or has a broken heart brought on by life, a failed relationship, a difficult job, a sickness, whatever it is. And in those times, the truth is that our only hope is the gospel. And as a triage unit, you recognize that people are actually needy. They're ne- I'm needy. I need to be needed. I'm so needy. And we don't just need help, but we need saving. We need the physician who by his wounds on the cross has made us whole. We're here because we can't get it together on our own. Calvary Church, one of the churches in my parish, is actually one of the places that AA started. The 12 Steps, Samuel Shoemaker and uh, Bill Wilson, was actually written in my office. AA, if you go across, any, go across the country, we have one at St. George's and one at Calvary, but these places, our basements are packed on Saturday mornings, packed to the gills, packed to the gills with people at AA meetings. And this is because nobody's talking about getting better. They all begin every, every time they get up and speak, they say, hi, my name's Jake, I'm an alcoholic. I, I'm, I'm going to start saying, hi, my name is Jake, I'm a sinner. But this is because nobody there has gotten away with anything. And this should be all the more true with the church. We believe the church should be a place, when, when you recognize that God is the one reconciling the world to himself, that when people cry out, from the trials and tribulations of life, they cry out from a broken heart. And that when they cry out with a broken heart in a place like this, not that they'll find the gospel, but that the Holy Spirit, the gospel, is going to find them. And he'll find him. He will find them there. And he'll find them here because the gospel is clearly proclaimed. But that assurance that when we cry out to God, he will not turn them away. Gosh, you've been working on being a new creation for a long time. I don't know. It's 70 times 7. Your sins are forgiven. I do not condemn you either. And the gospel, what it does in this triage unit, it comes and they get God in full in order to comfort, in order to cheer in order to restore us. For Christ, as proclaimed in the fullness of his gospel, is a wonderful Savior and a wonderful God who has removed the sword 
points at us in the law. He removes that sword by laying his life down for each and every one of us. And let me tell you, if you've been a Christian for tons of years, this, this is for you. This is for you too. The second role that the church should play is a cafeteria. It is here where the redeemed are nurtured and built up and fed by Christ himself in his gospel. And we are nourished as Christians through both that word of forgiveness and absolution and reconciliation proclaimed, but also through the sacraments in bread and wine and water over somebody's head. These are the places where Jesus has placed his name, which assures us of his grace and his mercy and the forgiveness of our sins in order to send us back out into the world to serve our neighbors in our various callings and to serve them well and to serve them honestly. Finally, the third role that the church plays is a school. It should be the place where we teach the historic Christian faith, and what we believe and why we believe it. That is the important thing. So that you understand what the gospel is and you can make a reasonable defense for your faith. This is my third point. The mission of the church, when it understands the gospel, begins to see that this is not about making people better with cleverly devised myths, as St. Paul calls them. Because at the end of the day, God doesn't want better people. He's not the least bit interested, as Dave said last night, he's not the least bit interested in better people. Rather, instead, the mission of the church is to be ambassadors for Christ. And what that means is, is we don't pitch our own message, rather we proclaim the message of King Jesus, which says you have been reconciled by him to God. You are a new creation actually right now. Because this is what God wants broken people. He doesn't want them better. He wants them brand spanking new. Listen. Anyone can dig a well. Anyone can give moralistic life tips. There's only one institution under heaven and on earth that has been given the, the authority to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. And that's us, the church. A new moralism is old news, and it's most certainly not good news at all. That is killing the church because it's a ministry of death. The good news we have been given is not our message, but God's. And it is the power of God to save and it is my prayer that St. Francis in the field will continue to be that great beacon of light here in Louisville, Kentucky. You're a tremendous encouragement to us in New York City. And you would continue to be that beacon of light as a triage unit, as a cafeteria, and as a school. Ambassadors for Jesus, not declaring our own message, but the message of our King, who loves you, has died for you, risen for you, and mark my words, is coming again for you. God bless you all. Amen.